Zito from seventh to first in the final event. You are a champion. And Oleksiak has done it! The girl from the six has got six Olympic medals. The substitute for Canada just about gets it through. It's a glory gold for Canada. Kathy Lifting goes up to Graham, takes the lead, looks a winner, draws away from Graham and Mary. This is a famous victory, a magnificent performance. It is Off The Podium, an Olympics podcast coming to you today once again for an athlete interview. And we are returning to the sport of rowing to speak with an Olympic gold medal winning rower, Sydney Payne from Canada, a member of the women's eights team that famously won a gold medal in Tokyo, broke a big drought for the Canadian women's rowing team since Atlanta. They had not won a gold medal since 1992 in Barcelona, hadn't won a gold in the women's eights, and it had been 13 years since Beijing in 2008 that Canada had won a gold medal at all in the sport of rowing. So uh, a great achievement it was. I remember talking about that a lot during the Olympics in Tokyo, and I know Colin was very much pumped for that gold medal. But Sydney, very pumped for that gold medal, and she talks a lot about that win in this interview, her progression into the sport, a very unique progression into the sport, started quite late and actually transitioned across from another sport, which if you think about it, really have no connections, but it was an interesting insight to learn how that all played about. The progression going to college in the US and how that kind of helped along the way and a great insight into the Olympics itself. Of course, with rowing, you have a heat and then if you don't make it into the final from the heat, you go into the repercharge, and then ultimately you get through in the repercharge, you go through the final. And there's a big gap in between, of course, a heat, a repercharge, and a final. And Sydney talks a lot here about how that actually almost helped them to not go through automatically in the final and go through in the repercharge, and how that ultimately helped them to win the gold medal. So it's a fantastic chat here from Sydney. You're going to learn a lot, and I know you are going to enjoy this immensely. Here is our chat with Canadian Olympic gold medal winning rower Sydney Payne. In Tokyo in 2020, or technically 2021, one Canadian gold medal was incredibly historic. Well, a lot of them were historic, but the one historic one we're talking about today broke a drought of nearly 30 years when it came to one event. It also broke another drought of 25 years for a gold medal in the sport of rowing for women at the Olympics, as well as a 13-year drought for Canada in general for a gold medal at the Olympics. That, of course, was the women's eights, uh, a fascinating event and always one of the uh, blue ribbon events of the Olympic Games. And I'm so thrilled to be able to chat to our next guest on the show today, a member of that team and I am so thrilled to learn more about her career and the great sport of eights rowing, because I believe this is the first athlete we've had on this show to compete in eights in rowing. So there's a lot to learn here today. Uh, it's a pleasure to welcome to the show today, direct from beautiful Vancouver Island, Sydney Payne. Sydney, welcome to Off the Podium. It's a pleasure to have you on the show today. Hello, and thank you so much for having me. It's going to be really exciting to think back to just over a year ago and everything that happened on the journey up to it. So 
it's I can't wait. I, I can imagine it's it's insane to think that it's been that amount of time uh, because I sort of saw on your your Instagram recently at the time of recording this that you've obviously shared the the photo of the gold medal win and saying this was a year ago today, which I mean, considering the lead up and the extra year and your journey to this point, the fact that you can just sit here now and go, oh, that was in the past. I'm I'm an Olympic gold medalist. This is just this has just flown by. And also with COVID and just then everyone having their own lives, that was the first time we all most, we didn't get everyone, but most of the women that went to the Olympics for rowing, we had them all together that weekend. And it was the first time we all got to celebrate together our success of going and then the women's eight success over there and the pair success. So um, it only took a year for us to get together. <laughs> Just a year. Uh, What's sad- a year, right? Yeah, sadly, nothing <laughs> happened right after. But wow. um, yeah, it have- feels like time has flown by. <laughs> yeah, it's it's crazy to think that because, I mean, gosh, I remember when they announced that they were delaying the Olympics. And, I mean, for an Olympic nerd like myself, Sydney, it's like, oh, no, what am I going to do? I can't imagine what that's like then for an athlete who's obviously – Prepping because as most people know, Canada were the first country to say, mm-hmm. "Yeah, no, we're not going." Uh, so, and of course, as we've spoken to a bunch of our Canadian guests on this show, it comes down to that fact of at that point you don't even then think, "Wow, I might not be going at all." While the rest of the world is having an Olympics, we could be just sitting at home watching this on TV. So, you were kind of glad that it got delayed, obviously, eventually. <laughs> yeah. Yes, we had an emotional roller coaster of a couple of days. But our whole actual month of March in 2020 was um, quite interesting because we we started the month with selection to create World Cup teams. And then we found out the World Cup wasn't happening. So then we continued our selection on to just to go straight into the Olympic boats. And so you have your ups and downs of the emotional stress of selections. And then Canada pulled out of the Olympics and we were all, or then COVID started to really become a massive thing in Canada as well. So we had that on top of us, like figuring out, oh, we're now wearing masks. We're now doing this. We're now doing that. Our lives are changing. And then Canada pulled out of the Olympics. And then we were all like, oh, great. (laughs) What do we do now? (laughs) And then a couple of days later, um, luckily for us, (laughs) the Olympics got postponed and um then we had this whole ordeal of like everybody else was the whole team going to continue on for another year because lots of girls had plans to go off to school other life commitments jobs things that were going to happen and so then we had a couple of weeks of please hope everyone (laughs) stays i hope everyone buys back in and then once uh, once we ended out March, I think most of us had recommitted and kind of started to realize what was really going to happen. The Olympics were going to be pushed a year. We were going to redo the whole year again and everyone was going to commit. So it was uh, one of the most emotional roller coastery months of my life, I think. <laughs> I can imagine. I can imagine. With the ultimate reward, of course, eventually that, that ultimately would, would come with it. But I love your journey into the sport, Sydney, because, mm-hmm. you know, you talk a lot to guests on the show and they start at a young age and everything along those lines. I believe you didn't get into rowing until about 15 because you were a pretty decent skier 
in the lead up to that. Uh, so how yeah. I, I often hear transition from winter to summer sports or vice versa, and there's often a connection to, between some of them, but I don't really see a correlation between skiing and rowing. So how do you go from being a pretty decent skier to all of a sudden becoming a, an Olympic gold medalist in rowing? Uh, well, I loved skiing and it was my passion. And it, I think to this day or for the rest of my life will be my favorite sport, but I needed a summer sport for the off season because obviously you only have snow for a couple of months of the year. And then you need to be able to do something else to stay fit. And I had unfortunately, but like most other skiers suffered a couple of knee injuries and my off season sport had previously been soccer, but it's not fantastic for once you've got a questionable knee for running and quick movements. So <laughs> my mom had found rowing through some research and she also loved the idea that it was a bunch of tall girls getting together to do sports. And she was like, Oh, it'll help her confidence. It's going to be wonderful. She's going to meet other tall women and feel great. And when she first floated the idea, I was like, yeah, no, I don't want to do that. That seems boring. <laughs> I want to try something else. <laughs> and so then my neighbor had found this flyer for a learn to row at our local grocery store. And it was like at this boat club that was 15 minutes away. And so our moms were like, great, they can bike there on their own. Like, we don't need to drive them at like five in the morning. Like, oh my gosh, this will be great. They can do this sport. It's just around the corner so they signed us up and I think um, my mom had convinced me by telling me my friends had already signed up for it so I should go Smart. when in fact I don't think they had <laughs> <laughs> good job <And> mom. <laughs> yeah <laughs> and so I ended up doing a learn to row that way and continuing on with rowing as my summer sport from I think it was 2012 when I started um, wow. because I remember watching the women win silver at the 2012 games that summer and I think that was the summer that I started and so that would have been like around 15 like I think I think I was young I think I was 14 I think it was in between grade 9 and 10 summer and um my best friend that I started rowing with complete tangent here is now works at world rowing and she's the only person that I got to see at the Olympics because obviously our family couldn't go and so this all started I started rowing because her mom found a flyer at the local grocery store and we got tricked into going (laughs) and then we both fell in love with the sport and uh we're both in it in just different capacities at this point. So the rest is history. Wow. Yeah. That's, that's, that's kind of my weird way of finding rowing. But I love those sort of stories when it comes to it. And it's just, it's always fascinating to think that certain little moments in your life can lead you on a, on a path because I can imagine with skiing, you know, this mm-hmm. is something you're saying you love. And I believe you got, what, ninth in the under-16 world champs in a Super G. So it wasn't like you were just sort of doing this fill the numbers. You were obviously pretty decent at it. I mean, I can imagine that when you're going yeah. through the ranks of that, that if you have an Olympic dream, you're thinking that I'm going to be on the, the slopes, you know, maybe in, in Sochi or, or in Pyeongchang or Beijing and, you know, barely even thinking that you could be sitting on a boat, you know, rowing backwards essentially in in Japan. So, I mean, that's that's incredible to think that that just one little moment led you on a completely different Olympic journey. It did. And I definitely 
would never have thought that I would have gone to the Olympics in a different sport. I have had dreams my whole life of going to the Olympics and I knew that it was a, a bit of a pipe dream in skiing, but <laughs> that maybe <laughs> with a long, long time and a lot of work, I might get there. But I, I think what did uh, help me with the transition was the fact that I could see that dream being achieved in rowing. And um, I had two seasons, I think, of rowing, and I'd had a bit of success in Canada, the junior level. And then I decided the next summer I was going to try out for the junior team. And um, I ended up not making it. I made the Canamax team, uh, and which is just slightly below the junior world's team. And then that summer, I'd again had a good amount of success and I was starting to see like, oh, like I'm actually kind of good at this weird little sport. (laughs) (laughs) But I had just gone to a ski academy for grade 11 and this was the summer between grade 11 and 12. And so I kind of really had to have quite a few heart to hearts with my parents sitting down being like, do I want to return to the ski school for grade 12? Um, and finish out my dream because I'd kind of seen that most likely I was going to retire from skiing at the end of grade 12. I was probably not going to, the chances of me making the national development team or any of that was just, it wasn't really going to be something that was super attainable. And I'd already managed to make it so far in skiing without any catastrophic, like horrible (laughs) injuries. (laughs) So I, I was seeing that I probably only had one more year left. And if I should cut that year short and see where rowing could take me. And I ended up making the official switch from skiing to rowing uh, two weeks before grade 12, wow. which left my mother in a bit of a pickle to try and figure out where I should go to school for grade 12, seeing as the school I was currently enrolled in was a ski racing boarding school and that was not going to work yeah, <laughs> for know the rowing there i can't imagine there was a, a no. rowing team at the ski race boarding school <laughs> no but oddly a couple of us did actually row and row in university yeah. so wow. small world but yeah. um we i did end up uh going to a different school i ended up at a boarding school on the west coast at brentwood that had because we realized if i really wanted to row year-round living in Toronto with winters was not going to be the best place for me to give it a shot. So we had I have a lot of family on the island. So I made the trek out here for grade 12 and got to row year round at uh, Brentwood. And I haven't go. turned back from rowing since well, grade 12. Go- so I was going to mention, so because yeah. were you born in Victoria and then moved out to Toronto or were you born in Toronto and then moved out to sort of uh, the island? I was born in Toronto, um, but my uh, most of my family and all of my family lives in Vancouver or Vancouver Island. Wow! So, so I've spent like a lot of my calling. life out here. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Which, which I mean, it's sort of you know talking off air. When I lived in Victoria, I mean, obviously summer sports are a lot more prominent than the winter sports. I used to love living in there. And as an Australian, you move and you're like, oh, snow, Canada, yes, this is exciting. And everyone's like, oh, it doesn't snow in Victoria, Ben. Don't be stupid. This is this is Florida of Canada. This is, you know, Hawaii. You're going to love it. And we got a couple of great big dumpings of snow. It was fantastic. But 
you know, the summer sports programs there are obviously very prominent and rowing being one of them. And so the Brentwood School, that's what, Mill Bay area, isn't it? So it's kind of it is, yes. nice, yeah. nice, nice area, not too far from Victoria. Which, Beautiful. Uh, all those winters then and snow uh, ski boarding schools and everything like that, does it take a bit of a shock to the system to go to a place where it's maybe not quite as cold as Toronto and it doesn't snow as much as it does over on the East Coast? It was a huge shock. Yeah. I was like, where is winter? This is just like half the year. It just rains. I don't understand. (laughs) And apparently the year that I went there for grade 12, it had like a freak warm, dry winter too. So it didn't even rain that much. And my mom kept telling me, no, 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 like, just be prepared. There's lots of rain. And I'd be like, I can handle rain. It's fine. She was like, you don't understand. (laughs) Which it's also, the thing I find interesting too is obviously there's a town uh, not far, well, I guess, I don't know how you classify town, city, whatever, Sydney near Victoria, which I know when I lived there and I was working for a local news website that you would never want to accidentally spell it with a Y, a.k.a. your name or a.k.a. Sydney in Australia because you got some very angry people who are like, that's not how you spell Sydney. This is, this is incorrect. This is all this kind of stuff. So um, I, I don't know if you, you know, did the obligatory go to Sydney, get the photo taken and then be like, oh, but they spelled it wrong. Cause you know, as an Australian, I had to try and do that way. I have not, but I have embraced that most people out here spell my name with an I <laughs> and it's just, it's just, just how it is. Yes. <laughs> and I understand because they're all used to it being spelled with an I, but that's just, that's my, I've just embraced it's, never it before happens. had it been spelled with an I, but now it is. <laughs> yeah. I guarantee you, if you come to Australia, it would never happen. Uh, we would, we would see that I with an I and like, what the heck is going on there? You're spelling it wrong. I, I don't get this, but hey, different places. That's, that's how it generally works. Is there any transition in terms of, training your gym work or anything to go from skiing to rowing is there is there anything that kind of helped from your skiing background to transition into a career in rowing instead uh definitely i had um quite strong legs from skiing (laughs) um but i definitely had to work on some of my cardio luckily um I wasn't terribly out of shape, but I was not <laughs> as used to the long steady state rows that I was soon going to get into. That was not so much my training, but to this day, still, if you give me some short bursts, if you give me some one minute pieces, those are my favorite. And that's about one minute to 90 seconds is kind of what we did in skiing because our you know, Ontario, the hills were short, but um, I can, oh, that's just all my favorite repeats. In the steady state I've gotten better at, still not my favorite thing, but something you've got to learn to love and appreciate. So I think that would be my biggest thing. And also working on getting a little bit more of a core and upper body strength because in skiing, legs and core are super strong, but um, I didn't really have so much of the ability to transition the power that I got from my legs in the rowing stroke all the way through the stroke and into the oar. So it was a a bit of a process, but because it's also yeah. <laughs> a case of upper body, obviously in rowing, quite important. But then in skiing, it's a case of it's important on certain levels. But of course, it's more about that, I guess, lean aerodynamic 
fitness of skiing where you don't want to be probably too bulky, uh, you know, in the upper body, whereas it's going to help you a little bit in the rowing when you're stroking and everything along those lines, you need that strength. So was that sort of rather than always concentrating on leg day that you would do, I guess, in skiing, are you then having to kind of go, okay, well, maybe I can do leg day every couple of days now and let, let's work on the, the, the top half this time around rather than always the lower half? I did a little bit in grade 12. I did not have to focus so much on my <laughs> mom, my leg days. And I worked a little bit more on getting some upper body strength. So that was important to add in to kind of balance out my body. But I definitely was always able to bring the power in my legs. I'm always fascinated with our rowers on the show the journey into each of the different, uh, you know, boats, you know, whether you, you're going to focus on, you know, singles, doubles, quads, or ultimately eights. When you were sort of getting into it more seriously, you're moving to Brentwood, you're doing that. Is it a case of you just trial and error? Uh, does a coach sort of look at you, uh, how you're going and go, you're going to be perfectly suited for an eight, you're going to be better in a, in a quad? I mean, how does that work? How do you ultimately specialize in the eight boat? Um, I think that's very individual. And I think some people over time find that they move big boats like eights better than pairs. Um, for myself, I spent most of my years in, so my years in high school rowing small boats, um, mainly a double and a pair. And so just with the two people. And I think that helped a lot with working on your technique because you can't get away with as much in a smaller boat sometimes. And you have to figure out how to move that thing with your partner in time. Um, and also in a single with only a little bit of time spent in the eights and quads. And in Canada in juniors, it's not super typical to sweep with the one oar. Most programs are sculling. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not a hundred percent sure what that is, why that is. I think oftentimes just, they don't have the number of athletes at junior clubs to put together an eight. So they often end up in the smaller boats, which a lot of the time end up being sculling. But, uh, I think I spent a lot of time working on those small boat skills, learning how to row. And then when I got to university, I, in the States, the U S programs are big boats focused. So in the spring or in the fall, sorry, at the start of the year, we would do pairs, but ultimately the goal was to build an eight that was the fastest. And so I think I learned a lot of big boat skills through my four years at university at Cal. And then when I got to the national team, I have, um, I've raced the pair, the four and the eight internationally. So I've one of the few people that on the team that have actually had race experience lining up in all of them and they're all very different. And I think I'm someone on the team that's very, uh, I can sit in any seat in any boat and try and make it work to a certain extent. Obviously I can't cox the boat and <laughs> I wouldn't say I'm the best bow seat, but I'm working on it and it's an adventure and it's something that I just this summer started to try and undertake a little bit more. But I, I think for most of us, we spend so much of our time not training in the eight just because it's not a great training boat because you rarely get a side-by-side -side with another boat to push your speed, to push your training. 
you end up mainly in fours and pairs. And so from that, you have to learn how to move smaller boats. And it also allows for a greater training environment. You can have a couple of people beside each other pushing you and you can get more out of the program, I think, in the smaller boats. So my very (laughs) roundabout answer is I think a lot of us row all of the boats all the time. And when it comes down to selection, there might be a few people on the team that move, you'll see move pairs a lot better. And then as they transition up into the bigger boats, they kind of fall lower in the ranking. And there's a few people that reversely don't move pairs better and kind of move higher in the ranking as we move through selection. But I think most of us are pretty even across the three boats, or at least in my experience on the team, you, the people that can move pairs are often the people who can move eights. And So it's kind of, it's, it's almost all, like a, in a weird way, progression in the fact that if you're doing well in a pair, you're doing well in a quad, that you're going to have the coaches looking at you for selection for the eights. Is that sort of like a... Almost if you're, if you're playing a, I don't know, a, a junior B, a junior A in the hockey and you're on the fringe of, you know, being picked up by a team that's sort of like you're, you're working your ass off with the hope that you can get selected for an eight. Like, is that like an honor if all of a sudden a coach is tapping you on the shoulder going, Sydney, you're doing great. We want you in the, in the eight. I think, uh, I think so. I, it depends year to year what boat they want to prioritize. And that will be the boat that everybody wants to be in. Um, and for us, it's the last quad, the pair had kind of been selected quite early in the quad because they had won the world championships. And so everyone knew that without barring any injury or anything like that, they would be the pair and that would be them. And then the next priority boat would be the eight to go towards. And um, so far this year, that's what we're looking at is building towards another priority eight and uh, we'll see next year what happens, but whatever that priority vote is, is what set by the coaches is what everyone's working towards the ultimate goal of being in. Which I can imagine it's such a, I mean, you're in a single versus an eight and just watching it, being a spectator and just seeing the craziness that you just see the intensity, everything that goes into an eights race. But do you remember the first time you go in an eights boat and just how do you even the first time, like how do you work that through that? Because I would imagine, you know, by your 1000th race, you, you're used to this, but your first time in an eights boat, I can't imagine that that's just a simple case of, ah, this is the same as every other boat I've been in. I have to say, I think every time I get to a eight start line, when I'm racing the eights and all six eights are lined up across each other and all the coxswains are there and the, and the light goes green and we're all going. I think every time I get a little blown away by how loud, how much (laughs) is happening at the start and how crazy it is. And I know certainly no other boat classes like that with that much happening and that much noise going from the dead silence to just mayhem (laughs) looks and sounds like so there's nothing, I think there's nothing like it in any day, other Olympic sport, is know. there? Like, I mean, bobsled, you've got <laughs> four crazy. people in there, canoeing. Everything's like a four, you know what I mean? Like even mm-hmm. your, your team sports, you know, be it, be it soccer, basketball, volleyball, you, you know, you're not in a tight, confined space. Uh, so it's like it's such a unique sport. I can't yeah. think of any other sport, even outside of the Olympics, where you've got eight mm-hmm. people 
in a straight line in just one little area all having to work together. I mean, it's just such an Going insane thing to think about, <laughs> is it? Yeah. Yeah. It's I it blows me away every time. I always forget how how crazy it is, the eerie dead silence of sitting up there and waiting for them to say go and from the attention to the go is often quite a long time. Sometimes it's like 10 seconds and you're just sitting there like, okay, okay, <laughs> waiting for them to say go and then madness happens. Done. Which and also the positioning in the boat. How does that mm-hmm. get chosen so i mean obviously you, you're mentioning you know positions like the cox and the bow but like in terms of if, if you're the, the third woman in line or, or the seventh woman like how does that come for is it a matter of putting your, your strongest people at the front the back and sort of spreading it out i mean how does all that get chosen in my experience on the national team it's been very different <laughs> every time i've been in an eight um i've been in the weird position of this is this world championships, I think might be the first time that I've repeated a seat. I have every time I've raced in an eight, I've sat in a different seat overseas, but it just comes down to the individuals that you have in the boat and who is going to set the stroke pair is usually the people that, so there are seven and eights, the last two that cross the finish line up with the facing the coxswain. Um, And they're the ones that are usually going to set the most consistent rhythm that's going to get the most out of the crew. And then you have your engine room, see your six through three, and they're the people that are going to drive that rhythm. They're the strong, usually and stereotypically the strongest people are just going to drive the rhythm the hardest. And so they'll sit there and then in bow, you usually have people that are maybe a little bit more technically skilled. So they, because the load is the lightest up in bow. So they've got to be able to, be right on time to be able to pick up the boat and sometimes that's how the boat ends up working out but every time we just keep moving people around for a week or two (laughs) just trying to see how the bodies move together and who's going to move the best with the other person in seats and we're just trying to get the most body timing to get them is going to be the best when those people sit there so I found that we just play around, try everything possible for a little while till, till it comes out. And usually you'll have a couple of rows where you'll just be like, wow, this, this, there's something happening here. This rhythm just feels effortless and easy. So essentially you're basically trying to explain there that it's not just a bait punch of women who line up on the dock that day and go shotgun. I'm at front shotgun. I'm third. Like it's a, there is essentially strategy to where you're being positioned in the boat. <laughs> there is. And a lot of people will think the strategy um, is kind of the stereotypical, like the best rowers are in six and seven. Then you've got your strong rowers in the middle and you're some technical, maybe not the strongest rowers in bow is what I've learned through my years. And what I've experienced on the national team is <laughs> that's not always true. <laughs> that it's a real like shuffle of people to get the right rhythm together. Yeah. Which also I can imagine you, you're talking about that loudness that you get in a race. But mm-hmm. how is it when you're out there in the water and obviously you, you, you're all stroking together, you're all kind of in that rhythm. But 
is there communication? So, like, can you all of a sudden be like, hey, like, you need to do this, and you look like somebody behind you is tapping, well, not tapping on the shoulder, it's probably a bad idea in the middle of a rowing race, but, uh, <laughs> you know, the, the levels of communication that all of a sudden you've got to go, because obviously there are certain points in a race where it's like, okay, let's let's stroke faster, you know, let's let's maintain this consistency, but how much are you talking out there and how much does that sort of help you through a race? Uh, well, in the eights, we're lucky because we have a coxswain, and so they have a little microphone, and then we have speakers I think every other seat down the boat. Um, so everybody most likely should be able to hear the coxswain telling the race plan throughout the, the race. And normally in all the other boat classes, other than eights, your bow seat will yell the race plan through throughout the race. And so for us, luckily no one has to do that. And our coxswain's able to tell us. And then there is some communication between people in the boat, but in a race, most likely it's just going to be like a, yeah, we've got this or like some sort of very short um, pump up kind of call. And I don't think anybody has the energy or the ability to speak too much in the race <laughs> or hope not. Yes. <laughs> Could be going harder. Yeah. Although so, if you're doing really well and the coxswain all of a sudden, you know, switches off her microphone and maybe puts on some music, then you go, oh, we're doing all right then. Uh, you know, I like this song. <laughs> I mean, that could be a positive sign, right? <laughs> it could. It could. I, I'll have to run that by her coxswain and see how yeah. she feels about that. <laughs> exactly. Which, how, like, how do you, like, is a coxswain... Like, how does a coxswain get chosen? Like, is that just uh, the the captain, basically, the, the best leader? Is that a, a rower who is just a bit lazy and just wants to sit there on the microphone? I mean, like, how do you become a, a coxswain in an eights boat? Um, well, recently the the restrictions have changed. So the previously there used to be two different weight limits, but now there's just one between the male and female coxswains. So I think it's 120 pounds. Um for a male or a female coxswain and you can they can cox either boat so a female boat could have a male coxswain or either or and it's usually just not sure how they all end up in the sport but these small people that end up in the sport that maybe they just didn't make it as rare as i'm not sure or they've always been coxswain (laughs) basically i think it's different for all of them um and they're usually incredibly good at hurting a group of people <laughs> together <laughs> and motivating and, and being able to have about a million things going on in their head at once. They're trying to run the practice or the race plan while watching everything that's happening around them. They're taking the feedback from the coaches, the feedback from the rowers, trying to create the most efficient way to relay that information to the athletes, to keep them in the rhythm, to keep them working on things. And it's just, uh, sometimes I don't know how they do it. I couldn't have that many things happening in my brain at once. I would have no idea. They're counting, they're running things, they're talking to people. They're, it's it's amazing. (laughs) Sitting up in stroke, you get to watch all of that happen in front of you and you're like, They've got a million different screens that they're looking at and data angry that jockeys, they're seeing. Angry jockeys, yes. you know, <laughs> basically. Which uh, the thing I love about it though is because they get a gold medal too, don't they? So it's it's sort of not of like course. other yes. sports where you know technically, like if you classify them as a coach or however that, because you know the the coach of the basketball team doesn't get a gold medal, the volleyball team they don't. Whereas obviously the Cox and 
does, which I, I think coaches should be getting gold medals. I think that should think be so in a thing. <laughs> Come on, Olympics. Let's make that happen. So, I mean, they're, they're doing all this work. They're getting a nice little, uh, you know, Sunday afternoon row at an Olympic Games and then walk away with the medal. So, but at the end of the day, do you also kind of look at them and go, look, you're just yelling at us. We're here working our asses off for 2,000 metres. Like, you know, pick something up, do a bit of physical work, all right, just stop yelling and you get the easy gold medal. We've got the hard ones. Well, you could look at it that way, but I they are an integral part of the boat. There's a heartbeat and they're the they're telling us what to do. They're reading the race plan. They're making it so that I don't have to think about a single thing other than putting my oar in and out of the water in time with the girls around me. They've got the race plan, they've got the steering, they've got everything else. So that all I have to do is go up and down following the girl in front of me. And so I yeah, I think they're <laughs> they're an amazing part of our boat and a lot of people don't understand <laughs> they think they just yell go 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 <laughs> they get the but easiest job in the world if you ever get the chance <laughs> to listen to some world-class coxswains race plans you'll understand how important and pivotal they are to the races and how they make the boat i love and hearing the especially stories if of the race all. isn't going pivotal yeah. or going to plan there imagine they're phenomenal to be able to regroup and rethink and reset the the race. It's almost like that timeout in basketball or something like that where it's changing. Which it was like, yes. yeah, as I love hearing the stories. You know, for example, whenever we speak to say a, an aerial skier and you hear the coach standing at the top of the hill screaming at them in the middle of the air, and you think like, well, how does that help? Like you're halfway throughout, but they talk about how much it does help. So it, it's it's incredible to kind of hear that mindset you're in during a race that somebody yelling at you uh, is obviously, you know, very instrumental in, in helping you get through that. You, you mentioned going to college in the U.S. at the University of California. You did quite all right there. Uh, I mean, how how instrumental was that in helping you sort of progress through there? Because, as you said, the U.S., very big boat concentrated, so I can imagine that helped a lot. And is that a common path for a lot of Canadian athletes who will head down south into the U.S. to try and get that sort of experience in the sport? I think it is becoming more of a common thing to happen for in the last probably 10 years, a lot more athletes have been going down and taking or making and taking advantage of the NCAA scholarships that are available. And you get, it was fantastic for me. I got a full ride for four years to the States. I got to train with some phenomenal rowers from the US from Germany, from Australia, from like GB, they were all there, some of the top UT3s at the time. And I got to train with them every day for four years to push me further. And I, I think the training there that I got was incredibly beneficial. And it helped me come back to Canada, make the U23 teams in the summers, race overseas against my teammates <laughs> at Cal, and then come back be roommates with them and <laughs> train again. So one of my my freshman year roommate and I actually met at Junior Worlds uh, just before we both went to Cal. We were staying at the same hotel and we realized that we were going to be roommates while we were there. We got the email. We were like, oh, this is so cool. We ended up being roommates for a couple of years in college and racing each other every summer wow. <laughs> overseas. And she was American and I was Canadian. So we would line up against each other every summer race and then two weeks later we would be training together in a pair at cal 
or we would be in boats side by side there. And so it was, um, it was a pretty amazing time and a very special group of people that I got to go to school with because we had that experience of so many of us being some of the top athletes from our countries at the H3 level that we got to race each other and then come back and train against each other, push each other harder, go back to our countries again and race again. And I, yeah, it was phenomenal. And also while all that was happening, we were all getting a good education. Well, that's, that's <laughs> also a, a side positive, right? Like, you know, you hope you yeah. get that when you go to a college, which it's, I mean, it's crazy to think that, you know, we'll obviously fast forward a little bit here to the Olympics when you win the gold, you know, the dominance that US mm-hmm. had had in that event, obviously at the last few Olympics as well. So it does it, obviously these are your teammates, they're, they're your friends, as you said, that sort of stuff. But I mean, America didn't even medal. Let's be honest. They choked. Sydney. They choked in Tokyo. Um, but, <laughs> and it's always a, a big thing for Canada, of course, uh, to beat, you know, America as well. But I mean, it, it must be just something there that you've, you've gone through all that in the States and you've gone through and you, you've knocked them off the, the, the perch. The, the sort of, as I said, haven't even medaled after such a big dominance. So uh, thanks, California, for helping Canada beat yourself, I think. Does that make sense? That makes sense. <laughs> it does. It does. It was a shock, but yeah. It's crazy it was, to think that, how that works. Which, wasn't their day to race. When you're going in that, you're in college and you're sort of going to the different you know, junior championships, progressing through the senior championships, going back to that Olympic dream, had you firmly set yourself on a goal for Tokyo and had you sort of had a realisation in that period, you know, still fairly fresh in the sport of rowing that this is a a realistic possibility, that this is my ultimate goal and this is looking good. If I just keep doing what I'm doing, I will be in a boat in the Olympics in a few years' time. That was definitely the goal. Um, Most of my rowing career, once it started to kind of sink in that, oh, maybe I could make the national team. Maybe I could race overseas and make the senior team. And I think I could be wrong. I have a fact check this, but I think I'm currently one of the few people on the team that has raced all levels of Rowan Canada's um, trajectory up to the Olympics. So I raced the Canamax juniors, U23s, seniors, and the Olympics. Um, so I've done the whole, the whole ladder. <laughs> ticked all the boxes. <laughs> I, yeah, I did. I ticked all the boxes. And I think when I was in and around, actually, I do know when this happened. When I was in my first year of university, I had an unfortunate accident where I broke my foot, but I didn't realize for a long time. But anyways, I had a rough year Uh, of injuries and rowing and coming on and off that and so before our first NCAAs my coach was like I think you should redshirt the year you haven't raced yet the only things left are the two biggest races Pac-12s and NCAAs and if you redshirt you can take five years and you can race again after and I was like no I in my mind I want to graduate in 2019 because I want to go try and make the Olympics in 2020 that's my goal as I want to graduate in 2019. So in my mind, I don't know if I ever told him that that's why I wanted to graduate in 2019, but in my mind, I put that as my goal, but my long-term realistic goal had always been 2024 because I thought, I don't know if one year on the senior team after graduating in 2019 was going to be enough to set me up for, to make a vote for 2020. Um, little did I know I would get two years <laughs> and it would go pretty well. But um, my, 
I think that's why I'm still continuing is that I'd always looked at rowing and I'd put my, my set, my mind at the 2024 games as the, as the goal. Those were the ones where I was going to try and make, and I ended up getting there early 2020 and going, going pretty well. So quick achiever, which I've got to to ask Sydney, how do you break your foot in rowing? Oh, it wasn't in rowing. Oh, okay, right. Just what I just got to say there. I was gonna, that's that's a unique injury no. to get in rowing. <laughs> Does somebody turn on your foot as you're getting out of the boat? I mean, geez, wow. All right. Okay. No, I never managed to injure myself rowing. I'm just very clumsy. Okay, right. I injure myself just doing other dumb things, and so yeah, that well, we one. We have a doctor on standby being, for this interview. Yeah, yeah. I ended up wow. spraining my ankle getting off a bouncy castle. Right, standard. Yep. Okay. Yep. That's mm-hmm. as we all do at some point yeah. in our life. So, okay. Yeah. How do you tell that to the coach? How, oh, I'm injured. How did you do it? Oh, you know, bouncy castle, as you do. <laughs> <laughs> it actually happened on the day before school started. So I hadn't even officially met my coach and really wow. as an athlete. <laughs> and so I did that on the first day of the welcome to school event. And then the next day, luckily, we had physicals. So I was able to go see a doctor and be like, hi, as you do a checkup and get my um, medical uh, work, the, the medical insurance set up. Could I also have my foot looked at? I've sprained it. <laughs> yeah, and then a year later, timing. we realized it was broken. <laughs> Jeez. Wow. That's that's incredible. That really is incredible. Uh, through all that, you know, you mentioning Paris is a goal, but we talked a little bit at the beginning of the interview about the process and everything that happened sort of in the lead up to Tokyo. But the moment you 100% knew you were going, that you were officially yeah. going to Tokyo, do you remember what that was like, that feeling? And sort of part two to that question, I was like finding out from our guests, is there a moment you feel like you're an Olympian? Is it that moment you're selected? Is it that moment you're on the starting line? If you're at the opening ceremony, like sort of through the emotions of being selected to, boom, I'm an Olympian now. We had a long lead up to our selection. Our selection went on for quite a few months, um, which was not enjoyable, <laughs> but what it had to happen for many reasons. And so I feel like I never really let let it sink in that I was going to the Olympics and then I'd made the boat. And I'm sure I had a few moments where I was like, wow, and I got the first jacket because most of our kit we got over at the Olympics. So before that, we got a t-shirt and a jacket to travel over it. So I think when I got those, I was like, whoa, so cool. They've got the Olympic logo. And obviously when we made the team, like there were some press releases and stuff. And so that kind of made it feel official, but I didn't have my Olympic moment until we were in the middle of our heat race. So our first wow. race at the Olympics. And I think we were about 500 meters in. So you, I was super focused on the race. <laughs> and I just had this moment where I was like, oh my God, I'm racing in the Olympics right now. And then I was like, Cindy, focus. This is not the time. <laughs> and so that's, that's when I... I had a poorly timed Olympic moment. <laughs> At least you had it though. Like I, I like it sort of ended there. Like, you know, we've had some people say like, oh, it hit me when I, you know, landed back in Canada or something like that, you know. So like at least you kind of have that moment. Because I also can imagine you obviously wouldn't have done probably the opening ceremony, right? Because you're competing on the, the first day and it's sort of not exactly close yeah. to the uh, the stadium, is it? 
sadly, no, the rowers, or at least the Canadian rowers, always have a rule that they don't go because we are the first week of racing. So you or your roommate is probably racing tomorrow. And also, even if you're racing the next day, it's not beneficial for you to be up till midnight or something because you apparently, I don't know, apparently you can't leave once you enter. And so you're there for hours and hours. So yeah, I don't know, it could be wrong. Long, but yeah, we just it's don't go. <laughs> ridiculously long process, which Sadly. I mean, it's like I've always said that you know, I've always you know, I think of like the swimmers and all that, you know, the people on that first day who are competing early, and I've always thought, like, like, fuck it, no, like, I don't care, like, I can live off two hours sleep. Like, I mean, this is coming from a guy who sits on a computer and talks in a microphone, I'm not, you know, sitting in a boat, you know, uh, you know, working my ass off, so. I always thought like, yeah, screw it. I would do the opening ceremony no matter what. But when you hear of, yeah, the process, you're in line, you're standing there, you don't get to eat like, and you're a professional athlete, like all these things that you want to be at your best the next morning. So do I really want to stand around, walk around, wave at, at literally no crowd during those Olympics and then kind of just, you know, watch a couple of digital projections on a, on a ground now, which is like, so do you still then have like a little moment? Do the rowers sort of come together that night and have the mock little opening ceremonies like a lot of the athletes do to kind of get into the occasion of it? Well, I think it was pretty cool because that night a lot of people weren't going to the opening ceremonies because in Tokyo just people didn't really want to do that kind of stuff, get in groups, be inside, be in buses with lots of people. So um, I obviously have no other experience, but I think this might be a little bit different than other times. Everyone wore their opening ceremony, or not everyone, but most people from most countries wore the opening ceremonies outfits to dinner that night. Nice. And so it was fun because just walking around the village that whole night, everyone was dressed up in their outfits. Some people were in their dresses or official blazers, or it just looked so nice because most of the time everyone was just in their normal kit. And so it was so cool to see everyone's opening ceremonies outfits and they were so different and amazing. And so we kind of got to experience a small amount of that that night. That counts. And we all got all the Canadians met outside the house like a five o'clock or whatever it was downstairs and took pictures together and tried to get a little bit of our moment of with COVID, just trying to get a little bit of the opening ceremonies feel. Fantastic. Yeah. And to just great. spend some time together. Great. And it's also, we always love finding out in terms of just soaking up the experiences, you know, in between events, uh, do you get involved in like the pin trading? Are you sort of, you know, hunting down like, oh, there's that name athlete, there's that name athlete or anything along those lines, really just soaking up everything else outside the competing in the Olympics at an Olympic Springs? I think a lot of people did get taken up in the pin trading game. I was quite terrible at remembering to grab more pins after I gave them out. <laughs> so I did not get too involved in that one just by my own lack of short-term memory. <laughs> um, but we definitely tried as best with COVID restrictions and stuff to try and experience what was happening. And every night after dinner, this was our big excitement in the village. So we would go for this long walk around the village because it was finally cool enough and you weren't in the sun and wasn't too hot and you weren't inside. So you could, you know, take a moment and wander through the village and just watching all the other athletes, a lot of the runners and boxers and other sports like that were doing warm-ups or exercises around the village. So it was cool to watch them and 
who are always trying to guess like, oh, what sport do you think that person plays? And then you try and like look at their like accreditation (laughs) to try and see if you were right or not. And same within the dining hall, we'd all be like, what do you think that is? (laughs) (laughs) What sport team do you think that is? (laughs) Which I love that. I love that guessing. We were right 50% of the time. (laughs) That's good. That's good. Because they're like, yeah, like going to the gym or something like that, watching people's workouts. What are they training for? What are they doing that? And then, you know, then probably being completely off the mark with some of it, which, you know, I love hearing all those sort of stories. The, The unique thing about obviously the eights and the event, like you compete that first morning, you've got the heats, but then ultimately you've got to wait, what, like four more days for the repercharge charge and then nearly a week for the final. So it, this isn't a swimmer where you've got a heat and then you're in the final that night or the next day. You've got a bit of time. And, and ultimately, of course, Canada don't go through automatically. You've got to go through in the repercharge. charge. So mm-hmm. what's that like, I guess, bouncing back the mentality of that? I mean, you know, you, you go into this gung-ho, you're like, cool, we're, we're going to these Olympics, we're going to do great, we're going to win a medal. But then... You lose to New Zealand, by the way. Sorry about that, but you got your revenge in the final. Um, and then having to back that up a few days later for a repercharge charge and then having to back that up again a few days later for a final. That must be a, a, a weird experience that, you know, you've got to overcome. Yeah, well, it was even weirder because we hadn't lined up against anyone in two years. The last time we got to race was the qualifying regatta in the September of 2019. Um, and so I think it had been almost 700 days since we raced against anybody other than our teammates. And so we, it was, the heat was a great unknown. We didn't, we didn't know how we were going to perform. We didn't know anybody else's speeds. And so about a week before the Olympics or 10 days before the Olympics started, we did a two we always have a, uh, before you enter the event 2k to test run everything to hopefully it goes well and boost your confidence heading in. And it's enough out that physiologically you're, you're all right. And so we'd done that in our training venue before the Olympics and it'd gone quite well. And we'd gone quite fast in a bit of a headwind condition. So we knew that we didn't have to do anything out of the norm and so that gave us a lot of confidence going in and so when we came second in our uh heat none of us were worried we were like that's okay it felt like we'd done like 80 percent of what we were capable of and the last little tweaks are just little things that we we didn't really figure out how to get our sprint together at the end that was the biggest thing where new zealand really sprinted and we had nothing to respond from what i remember Remember. Um, and uh, we felt like that was something that we could totally change and make better. And then the same thing happened into the um, into the uh, repertoire. The same thing. We didn't quite get a couple of things right, and it felt like we were maybe eighty five percent there. Like it was like we were just like slowly building, and it was we hadn't quite nailed everything, and but it was all felt like very easily fixed and like something that was not out of the realm for us to be able to do. So I think that gave us a lot of confidence and we were able to somehow stay calm and collected through this whole thing. And like you said, it's like quite a few days between each race, unfortunately. So you've got to be able to keep the momentum going and to not let having not won these races get in the way. And we knew that it would be 
probably more beneficial to not win the heat and to race the rep because we hadn't gone on the start line against yeah. anybody else in years. That was not, we'd never go into the heat wanting to not win, <laughs> but we knew that if it didn't go well, it would probably be to our benefit to have another shot versus New Zealand probably wanted to win that because they had girls doubling up. So they wanted to race probably less races throughout the regatta versus we didn't have to think about that. And we just wanted experience on the line. And I, yeah, we just slowly built through the two races to the final and then went out there and put everything we knew we had out on the line. And our, before we went away to the Olympics, we created this little motto for ourselves. We wanted to redefine excellence. And to us, that just meant that we needed to be the best that everybody was able to be. We needed to bring what we could to the day of the final and you didn't need to do anything that was exceptional anything that was out of the norm anything crazy you just had to be the best that you could be on that day together and anything was possible and so that's we that's what we tried to simplify it down to was that on the final we just needed to race the race we knew we were capable of that everyone brought what they were good at everyone is able to deliver and that if anybody beat us on that day, that they 100% deserved that and that we gave it our all because we'd spent the last five years listening to the girls who'd come from Rio where they'd had the race of their life on the rep and unfortunately come fifth in the final. And so we'd learned from them and from that experience that it didn't really, like you just needed to make it into the final and then have the race of your life and whatever place you came in, you could walk away happy because they knew that it's, they struggled to walk away happy from their experience in Rio because they knew they had more. And we knew that we didn't want to do that again. So we had to step up and deliver what we knew we were capable of or else it would be a challenging only three years this time though. (laughs) Exactly. Not not to turn around, but I love, I love hearing that. And some of my favorite stories in any Olympics is, you have an athlete who maybe finishes fourth, fifth, but they're as happy as if they've won the gold because, as you said, they put everything out in the line or, you know, some of these athletes who get a bronze medal and, and somehow, you know, Emily Seabom, Australian swimmer, you know, she got a bronze medal in Tokyo and she was acting like she won the gold because of just the journey it took her to get to that and, you know, she'd had a stellar career. I, I love hearing that. It definitely is a great story. And the thing that I love too about how all this played out is, I mean, that first heat stacked all three medalists were in that first heat so it's not like you know you you went out there and 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 lost to the states or something like that you know you lose new zealand you also you to beat china and all three of you go on to win the medals as well which it's it's insane i i I wish i had to fact check this to to know if how many of the the eight gold medalists over the years didn't win a race before the final you you know you sort of you lose a heat you don't win the repper charge and then you go on to win the gold like I, i can't imagine that is overly common that you you lose a heat, you, you get obviously don't win the repper charge, you go through to the final, but then get through the gold. So I, I don't know how common that is. But does that then also create a sense I of... I think the US did that in Rio. Right, okay. Because I think the Canadians raced them in the rep and beat them in the rep and then came fifth in the final. But I, I don't think that's very common. I think, yeah, you're, I think you're correct on that. We we'll get the we'll get the stat checks on that, and we can sort of get that for for the next time. <laughs> yeah. But because like, does it also create a level of going into a final? You obviously have the US mm-hmm. and New Zealand who have won their heats, 
You've got Romania's won the repper charge. Obviously, the US and Romania are, you know, all, all eyes are on them. They've dominated the sport uh, the Olympics since Canada won in 92. Does that then create almost a little bit of an underdog for Canada that maybe people aren't looking at us because we've had to go through these this route, we haven't won any of these, so, you know, we can just come through while everybody's focusing on them. This is going to help us in the final. Probably. <laughs> Probably because I don't think that we had – we'd come fourth in the qualifier um, and we hadn't won any of the races in the Olympics leading up to the final – I think there have definitely been question marks with us. Like, could they do it? Probably. Um, but I don't think anybody was 100% betting on us <laughs> to come out and win. I think a lot of people would have put their money on New Zealand or the U.S. But I I can't say, but I, 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 I personally love racing from the underdog perspective. <laughs> I think most people do <laughs> yeah. take some of the pressure off. You're there for fun and it's just amazing when you do well. Which I, I know it's probably impossible to put into words and it's maybe something, as you said, you've sort of only recently just gotten together with the team to, to celebrate it. But can you try and describe that moment when you do cross that finish line and you, and you realize that you've won the gold at the Olympics, you know, you, you're with your teammates, everything that's happening. I mean, just on a personal level, Sydney, that you dreamed of the Olympics when you're, when you're young and here you are winning it. Is it something you can at all put into words that moment? Uh, I can try. <laughs> I've been asked this question actually a couple of days ago about if I'd realized we were going to win in the race. And I don't really remember much of the race of the final. Um, but I do remember in the last 150 meters or so, the, our coxswain saying something about us, we were going to win the race. And I was like, oh, sick. yeah, let's, let's go. Like we're winning. <laughs> let's not <laughs> screw this up. Like, and then we crossed the finish line and I kind of realized, I was like, oh, we didn't just win a race. We won the Olympics. <laughs> I didn't really put two and two together in the race that what this meant. And there's a moment after we crossed the finish line when I had that realization hit and my family FaceTimed me after and informed me that they can lip read because apparently, oh, I remember this part, but I swore quite a bit when I realized <laughs> what had happened. And I was like, no way. Holy bleeping, bleeping, bleep. <laughs> we won the Olympics. <laughs> you can say it now. You're off the podium today. Um, you can let it out. We want to hear it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah so it was, um, I really, <laughs> I it all hit me at once there. I, I, some people were crying. Some people were hugging each other. And I was just, screaming swear words because I couldn't believe <laughs> that this had actually happened and that we had actually won the Olympics. Wow. So that was my moment. And then, and then we all got on land and we all had this kind of really moment of sadness that none of our family was there. Mm. And I think on, there was like a big jumbotron and it was showing some people's family members somehow. Mm -hmm. And that's when we saw that we were kind of like, Oh, this is really sad yeah. none of our family is here to experience this and but um then we quickly got wrapped up in the whole 
whole experience of quickly trying to go change, put on the world's <laughs> thickest, warmest tracksuits in 40 degree weather while I didn't even know what my internal temperature was at, but it was very uncomfortable. Wow. And then go try and stand upright for a long period of time in <laughs> the a heavy thing preceding 10 minutes of your race. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, that's crazy. I love, I love that the first conversation you had with your family, like, Sydney, what's your language? Um, you know, we yeah. saw you with that yeah. old My mom was like, we can lip read. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, oh. Shit. Oh, oh, sorry, mom. Yeah, what, what's going on there? But, I mean, as I mentioned at the beginning, the, the, the history that it also obviously brought, you know, for, for rowing in Canada, mm-hmm. I mean, 13 years since Canada had won a gold in rowing in general for, for, for female rowing since Atlanta and then for the women's eights since Barcelona, uh, an event which Canada has been mm-hmm. pretty decent in, in both the men's and women's. So I can imagine just for the sport in general, the, the breakthrough of breaking that gold drought, you, you know, I mean, was that a added sense of achievement? And also how much is that then going to boost the sport moving forward into Paris, to LA, to Brisbane and, and beyond? I hope it does a lot. I think I, I like to think it has brought more awareness and more um, excitement towards maybe not the most exciting looking sport from the outside. It's not always the most spectator <laughs> exciting sport. Um, or maybe I just feel like that because I came from ski racing, which is. <laughs> in a, come to Australia, Sydney. To we, we love our rowing in Australia. <laughs> we, we appreciate rowing a lot. So it's, it's you know, come to, if you want to row for us in Paris, it, the offer's there. <laughs> Tempting, but I, I think I'll stay here for a few more years. Yeah, Australia got fifth in the final. Screw but... Australia. We, we did all right, Canada. So it's, it's better. <laughs> <laughs> they beat us the other month uh, overseas ah, in the eighth. We're coming back. So, come on. A month there ago, we go. So that's exciting. <laughs> yep. Yep. Um, no, but I hope, I hope some of the awareness is, I hope more people know about the sport or more interested to try it or intrigued. And I hope it stirs some excitement and I think it has from what I've experienced, but I don't know. I'm not often with the other clubs. Yeah. Yeah. It's, but it's, I think the thing that it came from it is that, I mean, obviously Canada had such a successful Tokyo Olympics. I mean, you won more gold medals than the winter team did in 2022. Let's just uh, put that out there. But it, Shocking. It's, it's ultimately when you're winning golds in sports, which it's kind of the opposite for Australia, that when we win a gold in the Winter Olympics, all of a sudden people realise what mogul skiing is. Oh, what mogul skiing? This is amazing, mm-hmm. you know, and, and we pay attention to this. Yeah. Whereas obviously in Canada, it's it's kind of the opposite. It's If it's not a winter sport, it's, oh, rowing, this is a thing. So it's that level of exposure which, you know, a young girl could be sitting on a couch anywhere in the country and going, hey, that's achievable. I, I want to do that. And who knows what that would, would bring, uh, which I can imagine for you as an athlete, you're living in this moment, you're celebrating it. But if you've got one young girl or a young boy coming to you and saying, I was inspired by you at the Olympics and now I'm the best rower in the world, I mean, that must be almost as good as winning an Olympic gold medal. I hope so. I really hope so. I think something that our coach did leading up to the Olympics that was quite important for us that helped us because we weren't racing for two years before it. Um, she really tried to rally some of the alumni in the Victoria area because obviously a lot of them have stayed post their rowing career and come and talk to us about their experiences and a lot of the men that raced in 2004 and 
were the they were pegged to win and they didn't and then they raced in 2008 and won and then a lot of the women that raced in 2012 and got silver and we had a bunch of those alumni around there that were still connected and still involved in the sport come and chat with us about their experiences and what it took in there to get their crews to that level what broke their crews what helped them stay motivated through the whole experience and then also really just broke down the nitty-gritty experience of what it's going to be like in the village and all of these things and I think having the the community of alumni around there that was still so strong come and chat with us and try and help us through and into the Olympics was a huge important piece for us and so I hope we're able to do that for the future generations too because I thought that was quite important for us to have that exposure and that information from from the previous Canadian rowers and their experiences sure. and their expertise in different areas so yeah. hopefully we can inspire someone too I'm sure, I'm sure <laughs> they have, inspired I'm sure us. yeah absolutely no definitely I'm sure that will happen along the way Sydney before we get to a, a set of questions to wrap this up just a couple of quick things we've always got to yeah. ask all of our medalists particularly the gold medalists on this show the medal what do you do with it and also have you gotten free stuff out of it have you just worn it and gotten an upgrade on Air Canada or gone to your local store <laughs> and gone, hey, Olympic gold medalist, I'll have that for free, thanks. Like, you know, you can be honest with us here today. I have not. A couple of my teammates did try and get an upgrade for the way home with their gold medals, and then one of them forgot it in the bathroom. Oh, wow. Uh, because she'd okay. been wearing it around her neck to try and get uh, an upgrade <laughs> that went to the bathroom before we got on the flight and left it on the counter. Shit. And luckily, some woman went in after and found it. <laughs> wow! Didn't pocket it. To us. <laughs> no. Wow. No, thankfully. But um, yeah, that uh, some of my teammates have, but I, I don't think I, I don't think I've worn it anywhere trying to get anything free. Um, I have when people do find out that I am an Olympic gold medalist or just, just shortly after the Olympics, when people found out like restaurants would be like, Oh, you can have this. Here's dessert. Here's a whole bunch of things. Or here's our local coffee shop. That's um, has a cycling team. They gave me a whole new kit from their team and stuff like that. That's really more, more meaningful and sentimental. Cause it's, the local Rather coffee first shop class from where I grew back up to Canada. And, oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know. Who needs that? <laughs> who needs that? Exactly. Exactly. Which because yeah. I mean, obviously, you know, you you I can imagine you're bringing it with you, you're showing it, whether you visit schools or going back to your own club, things yeah. like that. And it's it's almost a bit of a badge of honor then to have it get worn, right? Because you get it, it's shiny, it's beautiful. Oh, but yeah. then like if it's scratched and a bit damaged, yeah. it's it's because it's it's got a lot of wear and tear and that's a it's good thing. It's been shared. Right? Yeah it's not I don't find it that exciting it just sits in a bag in my in my room and in my closet and I get to but it's way more exciting when I get to go share it with people I get to bring it around with me and put it on everyone's necks and have them get their moment with the medal and excitement over it so that's that's way more fun with it I yeah. don't I don't think I've ever taken it out and looked at it myself in my room. Just walk you around the house wearing it. You take it out when other it. people want to. <laughs> Not you know, yet. 
Sunday afternoon, I'm Maybe bored. I'll wear my Olympic gold medal. Let's let's do it that way. <laughs> Which I mean, another enticement though, Sydney, to get you to come to row for Australia. Had you won that gold for Australia, you would have been on a stamp. So there you go. You win a gold medal for Australia at the Olympics, you get to be on a stamp. So I don't know what Canada does that way. I don't think you get to be on a stamp, do you? I don't think so. I think our I think our rowing Canada had a few stamps made. Mm-hmm. They to send us our uh, some official things, but they didn't. It wasn't a nationwide stamp that was available. So Damn. sadly, we missed out yeah. on the stamps. Yeah, if you ever want that, it, the offers there. I think in the UK, I know during the London Olympics, they I think you got a post box, didn't you? Like a gold post box in your hometown. So I don't know if they. <laughs> still do that i mean the weird honors that's amazing yeah um i mean gosh there are some Mm -hmm. countries where they basically get the whole country named after them basically if you win a gold so uh yeah it obviously depends on (laughs) where it comes from but it's it's always great sort of hearing that sydney as i said we wrap up every interview with a set of kind of fun get to know you questions unfortunately i mean you might have you obviously probably did a a media day or something for the olympics where you're doing a lot of interviews and questionnaires and again we're not sure if you would have done this because team canada gave this questionnaire to athletes ahead of rio and pyeongchang and at least if they gave this questionnaire to you before tokyo they never published it on their website so we don't know if this was a thing that ultimately you would have done it's a get to know you style questionnaire which also if you want homework you don't have to, but there's a drawing element. So, for example, here, there's draw a picture of yourself, draw a picture of a Canadian animal, what's the coolest Olympic medal look like. If you do, you feel obligated to, send it in to us. We'll put it on our social media. Otherwise, it's fine. I know which one the coolest Olympic medal is to me. Is that it yours? It was the Vancouver 2010 one. Oh, the Vancouver yeah, one, right, of mine course. Is, yes. Mine is cool, but I, I loved those ones. They were yeah, beautiful. Yeah, they were amazing. Yeah, I agree. And then the fact that um, yeah. that they all basically formed a jigsaw puzzle as well, right, that they, you could connect them all together and they formed one big image, which clever, very clever. So we'll see how they, they top that. You get the Olympics in 2030 again. How are they going to top the 2010 Most likely, medals? yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I don't know how they're going to top that, no. But we'll see. We'll see. I mean, obviously, it's been organised by First Nations, so maybe it'd be had some really cool sort of, uh, you know, design around oh, that. Oh, they're going to be beautiful be... for sure. Yeah, exactly. They'll be the yeah. best medals ever. Because they there had some Haida Gwaii de- design on them for yeah. the 2010 one. So hopefully they continue that because it was really beautiful. <laughs> it would, yeah, definitely. Now, I'm going to start off by asking this one if, uh, you can and you can be completely biased. You can answer your own home cities anywhere in Canada. If you could choose any Olympic host city, where would it be? I like Vancouver. Yep, it's a good one. <laughs> it could handle a it's summer a good Olympics. One. I can't think it? of Vancouver. A... Oh, for sure, they could yeah. do either. Yeah, yeah, summer or winter. I would. I think it's boring because it's already been done, and it's probably going to happen again. But it's just, it's a, it's a beautiful city in Canada, and you've got the mountains, you've got the ocean, you've got places. They've got stadiums and it's a big city, and I just it's ready. I, I mean, just like Beijing, Beijing hosted the summer and winter, so you could you know tick that off with Vancouver. So you'd have the rowing over on yeah. Vancouver Island. You know, you could have some Olympic events yeah. over there. So for that sure, works. spread it out. I think exactly. that's the plan for 2030 is to spread it out across the province. 
Yeah. yeah. I, I like it when they kind of do that a lot. With the, the next Commonwealth Games uh, back in Australia and they're sort of the state of Victoria is sort of doing it. So they're spreading that right across the state. So, yeah, sort of how they do that a lot yeah. more with the Olympics now and sort of spread it all out. The weirdest instruction a coach ever gave you was? I can't think of that, but my mind goes straight to this call our coxswain used to make, which I had to ask her to stop making because she used to say 16 legs is one. And that used to just make me think of a centipede. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. So her point was everyone was driving their legs as one, but it just, every time she said that, I would just think of a centipede and I was like, can we like, everyone loved it, but I was like, I can't, we need to change this call. Something. <laughs> it makes me giggle because I can't, <laughs> I can't focus on this call. Wow. Jeez. I, it would be easier for her to just say centipede, just centipede, centipede, centipede. <laughs> then you go, oh yeah, the legs. Right. Okay. Yep. That works. Okay. That, that, yeah. I like that. Um, <laughs> you kind of answered this before in a, in a way, sort of, uh, your favorite workout is. I love some short intensity, something around a minute long, some just let's see how max speed for a minute. We come off, we rest for a little bit, regroup, go again for a minute. That's kind of my favorite workout. Nice. I, I love said, it. I've said it's, this before. It's a killer, but it's... It works. It does the job. I've said this before to some of our rowers on yeah. the show. The rowing machine when I would work out wasn't exactly my favorite. Um, but that's no yeah. disrespect to what you do. It's not it's my just, either. No, not. <laughs> are you, are you do, I do the circuit. You go have a PT, and I'm like, right, we're getting you on the rowing machine. Oh fuck, really? Like, you know, another twenty minutes on the treadmill. <laughs> Can I do that? Like, you know, I'd rather than that five minutes on the rowing machine. But you know, that's I, yeah, it's a popular opinion. Yeah. It seems. Uh, if you I, could I have, don't, I don't know that I know that many rowers that love it. <laughs> yeah. Do you actually? Well, on that, uh, do you do the? Have you ever <laughs> sort of done the indoor rowing championship? Because I found out this was a thing recently that you can sort of basically get on the rowing machine and they've got like world championships for this i have not done the official one no but rowing canada tried to host a national nationwide one in 2020 i guess probably maybe 20, yeah i think november 2020 um so i guess i've competed in that where we did you could start and do pull a 2k with your computer somehow hooked up to your erg screen and join the event but I've not done the official world rowing one. I, I loved it when I discovered this was a thing and you just see the words World Indoor Rowing Championship. You're like, how does that work? <laughs> like you, you have a two-kilometre yeah. lake in your house? Like, I mean, do you build it? Like, I just like, yeah. wow, this is a, a very unique thing that people need to know about. But then it's like, ah, oh, rowing machine. It's that- a huge swimming pool. <laughs> yeah, bloody hell. Like, Jesus, that is the, the biggest swimming pool in the world. Um, looking forward to the, the 2K at the, the Paris Olympics in this giant <laughs> swimming pool, uh, non-stop. Um, if you could have lunch with any one person, who would it be? Oh, that's a good question. Mm. They, they think these through, Team Canada. <laughs> oh, I don't know. Is there a celebrity crush or somebody that you would think like, let's go out for lunch with you, Ryan Gosling or Ryan Reynolds, well, all the Ryans? <laughs> <laughs> I just saw a book on my bookshelf and I would 
this is kind of stereotypical answer, but I think it would be really cool to go to lunch with Michelle Obama. Ooh, Not very yes. Canadian of me. No, but I, I just think that one. she'd have some, she'd have some cool wisdom to chat about. So yeah, I, I'd agree yeah. with that. Did, did you watch? Um, well, they had uh, the first lady that uh, they had a show, and I think it was Viola Davis played Michelle Obama. Um, pretty pretty decently. Oh, I haven't so, seen that. No. Yeah, it was sort of um, they had um, they had three different first ladies in history. So you had Michelle Obama, Eleanor Roosevelt, and uh, Betty Ford basically. Uh, so you had like Gillian Anderson playing uh, Eleanor Roosevelt and great Canadian Kiva Sutherland uh, playing a husband. And then you had uh, Michelle Pfeiffer was Betty Ford. So uh, it was it was interesting. It was kind of unique look at sort of the lives of the first lady. So uh, recommend it if you're, if you're a Michelle fan. But that's good lunch. And All she'd right. pay for it too. I can imagine yeah. Michelle Obama would pay for your <laughs> lunch. So... You know, you'd get a free one with the gold medal. So, you know, she, she'd have to pay. She doesn't have that job anymore, right? Um, you're, speaking of food, what is your favourite sandwich? Oh, that's a good question. I am not a big sandwich fan. I ah. don't uh, – I'll, I'll eat them, but they're never my go-to. But my favourite would be – my family recipe of this um, finished bread that we always make for holidays and then the leftover turkey and um, cranberry sauce and nice. just a little bit of lettuce and stuff on the on the homemade bread is my favorite. Those are always like great that. leftovers. Yeah, leftover meat from Christmas, Thanksgiving in a sandwich, any holidays is, yeah, always tastes a little bit better, doesn't yeah. it? If you could have any superpower, what would it be? teleportation be, would be really lovely <laughs> yeah it would help <laughs> to be able to be somewhere instantly yeah that would be yep. really lovely in my life right now then i wouldn't have to i'd be at the lake i'd be like oh i'm tired i'm ready for bed okay we're home <laughs> we're, we're showered we're ready straight in the Nap bed time or yeah oh i don't have to sit in the plane for 12 hours <laughs> all right i'm over in europe now <laughs> <laughs> easy or if you're just bored it's like ah, oh, saturday got nothing to do i'm going to france you know oh, you just dinner yeah. and dinner in france spend the night in uh south africa like you just you're, you're bouncing around the world wherever you want to go That'd be so, really wonderful yeah or also the easiest because one, we've got oh yeah yeah i was gonna say the olympics start finish line like that. Oh, gold medal in a world record time of 0.5 of a second. There you go. Wow. Canada wins. <laughs> that would that would be That would also be really lovely. <laughs> yeah. Getting to 100 meters sprinting, yep. you'd, you'd break the, the sound barrier basically, uh, things like that, you know. 20-time uh, gold medalist at Paris, Sydney Payne in all these different events just by teleportation. All the different sports. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You tick them all off. Every single sport, the first Olympian to win a gold medal in every sport at the same Olympics, you know. It's... <laughs> Somebody's got to do it one day, right? Um, you can be the yep. first. Um, the Sounds best, great. <laughs> the best candy in the world is? Mm. I think these little, um, little, little sour keys, as we call them. They're just little okay. sour candies. Beautiful. They're my favorite. Okay, that works. Always a, a sour ones are always a popular choice. Uh, as a kid, mm -hmm. your favorite sports team was? 
I didn't watch a lot of sports, so I'd probably say the Canadian national ski team. It works. <laughs> As that's a kid a growing up. Yep. 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 That counts. I was going to say Toronto. Or Lindsay get... Vaughn. Oh, Lindsay Vaughn, yes. Uh, not the kid. most Canadian choice, but still, she's a legend. Uh, no. So, <laughs> mm-hmm. it, it counts. I, was, I know, I'm picking American things. I know. Gosh. not very Canadian of me. Oh, see, we have, to, we have to edit all this out, Sydney, so you just don't uh, get people thinking you have a sort of a reputation here all of a sudden. So, uh, your favourite sports movie is? I think there's any rowing movies. I always like to think about you know, an athlete and what movies there are, but I can't think of any, unless there's documentaries out there of, of just a, you know, James Bond's never rode. So, so um, <laughs> that's usually the bar. But. I can't even think of a sports movie. I can't even think of sports movies. That's, uh, that's. Um, <laughs> Make me a bad athlete. <laughs> oh, Bend it like Beckham as a kid. Bend it like Beckham. Favorite, I guess yes. sports movie. It's a great movie. Soccer movie. <laughs> yeah. It's been a while since um, that's, yeah, that was that was huge back in the day when that came out. And I think kind of, uh, obviously, with the success of the Canadian uh, women's soccer team, it maybe gets a bit more prevalent yeah. out there. So, yeah. Bring back Bend It Light Beckham. Great movie. Uh, if you could live anywhere in the world, where would it be? I would maybe choose to be continually moving. <laughs> <laughs> that's where that teleportation that comes in handy. <laughs> but yes, I recently, or a couple, two summers ago, when we were training in Amsterdam, I just really loved it there. Lots of tall people there as well. And I enjoyed the city and hopefully I can get back and explore more. But of the places I've been, I definitely love to go there. But I'm... I'm a city girl. I love a big city. I love the big energy there. So I would probably pick a large city somewhere. I like that choice. Definitely like that choice. Sydney, it's been a lot of fun chatting with you today. Before we let you go, if people want to follow your journey towards Paris and beyond, uh, social media, where can people follow you and, and check out what you're up to? Uh, Instagram is the best at Sydney R. Payne, I think it's my handle and yeah i think that's i'm trying to get better at updating (laughs) (laughs) along the journey but we'll see we got two more years to try and figure it out so indeed yeah well we're going to be keeping an eye on it so closely because uh, obviously it's yet only two years it's insane to think that sort of that little closeness that it is compared to what you're used to but uh, this has been a lot of fun learning about this about eights in particular I've, I've learned so much about uh, that part of rowing as well and everything else in your in- incredible career and it's going to continue to be more incredible Sydney we'll get you back on after Paris with that second gold medal around your neck maybe we can compare the two you know what, what's better looking a Paris gold medal or, or a Tokyo gold medal I like that idea. (laughs) Thank you so much for having me. And a massive, massive thanks to Sydney 
for her time. Love learning all about that aspect of rowing that is eight. It sounds like an absolute kerfuffle to be in that boat during an event and uh, amazing to hear how that all works and some great answers there at the end. Michelle Obama, I'd have lunch with Michelle Obama. That would be a pretty decent lunch. I think, and uh, sour candies. Not the biggest fan of sour candies, but I, I could go for a bit of sour candy right now, I think. Always uh, a good time, even if you're not a fan of them. I'm not making any sense here right now, am I? One thing that does make sense, though, is that Sydney gave a great interview, and if you liked listening to this, of course, you can see the video version of this on our YouTube channel, as well as all our past interviews as well. And also, while you're on social media, we're also on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you want to stay up to date with the show, send us a message. Let us know what you're thinking of the show. We'd love for you to get in touch. And subscribing to the show, of course, as well, is how you can get these episodes directly to your speakers and make sure that you never miss an episode. You're not going to want to miss any of our episodes in the coming weeks because we have some great chats lined up over the next weeks and months of Off the Podium. I will say, just as a bit of a teaser, we've actually lined up one of Sydney's teammates from Tokyo to talk about her experiences winning that gold medal in Tokyo. So stay tuned for that. But in the coming weeks, some people have got lined up for you debuting a couple of sports we've never talked to athletes from on this show, including next episode. I'm very excited for this. An athlete from a sport that involves a ball, a racket, and a net. I've said this a few times now, and there are only two of these sports in the Olympics, and both of them we've never had an athlete from. So I'll just... I'll leave it open-ended. You can fill in the gaps from that one too. But we're returning to winter for a couple of skiers in the future. Some more sports that we haven't covered involving balls and dancing. I'm so excited for one of our guests in the coming weeks from a brand new sport in Paris and dancing. There's only one. I'm sure you've understood that. But uh, basically the best male Australian athlete in the country right now in Australia. Uh, We'll be talking to him about the great new sport that we're going to be seeing in Paris next year. And of course, some other ones coming up. Jared Collin and myself will be back together shortly to do another great episode for you. And we're rapidly approaching another clip show. Our 300th episode is uh, getting closer and closer where you'll uh, get another clip show of all the best bits from episodes between 251 and 299. We always enjoy bringing the clip shows to you, a little trip down memory lane, give you a bit of a week off from something new and uh, be a bit nostalgic for what you've heard over the last 50 or so weeks. So that is also coming your way too. And I will say later this year, we're obviously talking a lot about Paris and athletes who are in the lead up to Paris. And always is the case, I will add that often we do these interviews several months in advance. So if we're talking about Paris being two years away, obviously we know at the time releasing this, it's not quite that way. But Later this year, we uh, will be doing sort of a, a, an episode we generally do about a year out from every single Olympics. We did it ahead of Pyeongchang, Tokyo, Beijing. We're doing it, of course, for Paris. We'll be doing a Looking Ahead to Paris 2024 episode. So we'll be airing that around about when it's a year to go before Paris. And we will just look ahead to where the hopes are for both Australia and Canada, some other athletes that we're looking forward to seeing. And some of the events and everything that we're going to be seeing at a very unique Olympics. First time we've had an Olympic Games in Europe in uh, over a decade, at least the Summer Olympics, of course, uh, and uh, a decade to the day, basically, or to the year, I should say, since we had an Olympics in Europe in general. So uh, looking forward to that. That will be coming a little bit later this year as well in July. So uh, looking forward to 
all of that happening along the way. Big thanks again to Sydney for her time on the show and thanks to you for listening to this episode. Shout out, as always, goes to the Birmingham Bull. My name is Ben. This has been Off the Podium and remember to a go, a left. (laughs) 